I play basketball almost weekly with, um, with uh, somebody who's a screenwriter who wrote a movie about basketball starring Woody Harrelson, but no, it's not that movie. <laughs> we, however, are two white guys who can no longer jump, and so we often sit uh, together after, afterwards talking about a number of things. And a few weeks ago, we were talking about the process of writing. Thrilling, right? <laughs> so he was telling me about how he wrote this, his favorite scene for this entire movie about basketball, um, about a certain character uh, or a type of character that he had in mind. Um, and that specific person, again, in his mind was somebody whose presence was tall and intimidating. So when they cast this person, the actor was perfect, actually a former WNBA player. Um, it was perfect. It was a perfect match between the original idea and the person set to embody this original idea. Unfortunately, right before they were about to film, this person got COVID. And so with limited time, they hired a local actor who was really good, except she was really, really short. So the writing was still good. The actor was still good. But in the end, the essence of the words didn't match the reality of the particular moment or those particular people who were performing this, this particular scene. So, the scene that he wanted to see come to life the most was cut out of the movie. What a bummer, right? And he said, you know, honestly, it was actually the right call, but it was tough because those were my favorite words. Like, those were the, that was what I loved the most. So, back to the process about writing. He said, it's actually important that we don't make our words too precious. Sometimes our favorite words need to change. Or sometimes our favorite words need to be cut for the sake of the larger story. I told him that when I write sermons, like almost from the beginning, uh, from the first time I became a pastor, uh, that I have this particular quote in the back of my head or in the back of my mind from Mark Twain uh, that says, if I had had more time, I would have written less. How does that sound? So if you're ever sitting there thinking to yourself, God, I wish this sermon would just end, <laughs> just know that I probably didn't have enough time, right, to make it shorter. It, it, and it seems like as Christians or probably religious people in general, it seems that, that we have a similar challenge when it comes to our favorite religious words. As we read the Bible or as we spend time in church, there might be particular phrases, images, stories, or ideas that resonate with us or, or feel meaningful or familiar. These words are precious and, and they're good. But sometimes they're so precious that we don't dare stop to wonder, I wonder how other people experience this, or I wonder how other people might understand this particular idea. Maybe our religious words are so precious that we don't dare to wonder, do I even understand what this means? Now, this is not a judgment of faith. It's not a judgment of any particular people. It's just recognition that sometimes how we articulate faith doesn't match a particular moment 
or make sense for a particular person or for, to, or for specific people. For example, Jesus' ministry begins in the Gospel of Mark with him proclaiming, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. There's probably a bunch of words there that we, we could talk about. Um, but let me ask you this, uh, what images come to mind when you hear the word kingdom? You can actually respond. What images come to mind when I, when I, planet earth? What else? Kingdom. Castle. Sorry? Royalty, right. Like knights and feudal lords having wars with one another and fire-breathing dragons, right? Like, or the crusades. Like these are the images that come to mind, at least to, for me when I hear the word kingdom. So, I wonder how much do those images of, in reality, our experience of it, whether it's on TV or in history, how much do those images of top-down authority, violence, and domination stick with us even when we hear the word or we think about the word, the kingdom of God? Jesus' use of the kingdom of God was intentionally subversive, because at the time there was only one important kingdom that mattered, the Roman Empire. They controlled everything. So when Jesus used the phrase God's kingdom or God's empire, his audience knew that he was bravely, probably foolishly, setting his way of love up in contrast to the way of Rome. So let, let me ask you this. When we pray every single week, every week when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, do you ever think to yourself, wow, how beautifully ironic and subversive that is? Anyone? No? <laughs> if we continue to use the word, I don't have a problem using the word kingdom, but if we continue to use that word, we need to know that it doesn't mean what we intuitively think it means, whether we think about it overtly or not. So what does it mean? Well, let's look at Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13, as a part of what this means. Once again, Jesus went out beside the sea, and a large crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. And as he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collection station, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the religious leaders saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So as a reflection of God's new reality, Jesus begins to create a community of the most unusual friends. 
We, we heard already today from Peter in the children's moment that, that Jesus first called a group of people who were part of the fishing industry, which at the time struggled, like really struggled under the weight of Rome's economic control, Rome's control of land and sea. They owned everything. It was tough to make a living fishing because of having to buy permits in order to fish, and then selling the fish to Rome who would give you very little, and then they would tax you on top of that. So Levi actually represents this system of injustice, really injustice of all kinds, because not only do the, do the fishermen experience injustice within their industry, after all is said and done, the tax collector comes and says, I'm going to take as much from you as I possibly can to enrich myself. So Levi is this representation for us of this economic system of injustice that keeps the poor poor and the rich richer. How, how strange <laughs> then that Jesus' new reality would be a community of natural enemies, like people who clearly don't get along. A community of imperfect people whom Jesus still treats with respect. Whom Jesus still loves and treats as if they're worthy of friendship and belonging. It's Martin Luther King weekend. And uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his preaching and in his protesting often talked about the kingdom of God. A lot. He talked about the kingdom of God. But perhaps knowing just how complicated this phrase is or can be, he would often pair the kingdom of God with this idea of the beloved community. In contrast to the kingdoms of our world, Dr. King once said, the aftermath of nonviolence is the creation of the beloved community. The aftermath of nonviolence is redemption. The aftermath of nonviolence is reconciliation. The aftermath of violence, however, is emptiness and bitterness. One of Dr. King's core principles was that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice or evil, not people. Nonviolence seeks friendship and understanding with those who do unjust things, not their defeat. The tax collector perpetrated injustice, which is why even the religious leaders of that time asked, why is Jesus eating with those people? How could he possibly eat with those people? It's because Jesus was proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom or God's new reality or God's beloved community. Coming near, coming close, happening here on earth in the real world as it is in heaven. So on this MLK weekend... And every weekend, anytime we pray or we think about the kingdom of God, we too are a part of this new reality. We too are a part of, 
of bringing this beloved community into fruition in this world, not waiting until the next world. Please join me as we pray. Jesus, thank you, this weekend especially, for Dr. King, who came to proclaim your good news of God's beloved community. We pray for a world that is, that is ordered around your justice, your peace, your equality, and your love. Amen.